You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a well-liked young wife with no known enemies who was gunned down in cold blood in her Texas yard. Despite the attack, the attacker, and the getaway vehicle all being captured on surveillance, the case remains frustratingly unsolved almost five years later, and her family still hoping for answers. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or on Facebook at facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support The Murder of My Family and get VIP access to things like ad-free listening, early preview episodes, and bonus content of not only this show, but for every other podcast on the Abject Network of Indie Podcast, consider subscribing to the show with an Abject Insider subscription through Apple Podcast. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting the show in the process. Your support is greatly appreciated. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Elizabeth Marie Nelly, who went by Liz, was born on June 26, 1989 in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Parents Robert and Rosemary. She had an older brother, Robert. During her life, Liz lived in Illinois, Missouri, and Florida and eventually the family wound up settling in the Spring, Texas area, where Liz graduated from Klein Collins High School in 2008. Liz was a big Chicago Cubs fan and a fan of the Harry Potter books. She was also into Star Wars and cosplay. Following high school, Liz went to college spending her freshman year at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, before transferring to Sam Houston State University in Huntsville for the 2009 academic year. Liz graduated from Sam Houston State University with a bachelor's degree in psychology in 2012. It was while at Sam Houston that Liz met her future husband, Sergio Barraza. Liz and Sergio seemed to be an ideal couple. 
They did a lot of fun things together and got along well. They both enjoyed movies, and like Liz, Sergio was also into Star Wars and cosplay. And they both wound up joining the South Texas Squadron of the 501st Legion, a worldwide organization of Star Wars fans that create costumes for their cosplay. Liz and Sergio married in February 2014 and bought a two-story home in seemingly safe middle-class development at 8623 Cedar Walk Drive in Tomball, Texas, northwest of Houston. Although the neighborhood didn't have a high crime rate, Liz and Sergio added a security system with Nest audio and video recording capability because they had been burglarized at their old apartment and wanted to be secure in their new home. Liz worked at the Rosen Group as a data reporter, and Sergio worked with his father, Oscar Barraza Sr., as a crew chief installing flooring. Liz was a volunteer for the Peter Mayhew Foundation, a charity group supporting multiple causes, and she enjoyed dressing up in her Star Wars attire to try and cheer up sick kids at the hospital. In that spirit, she was also an organ donor. She wanted to help other people if anything ever happened to her. For almost five years, Liz and Sergio seemed happy together to everyone that knew them, and they were outgoing and had a lot of friends. In January 2019, Liz, who was 29, and her husband Sergio were gearing up to celebrate their fifth wedding anniversary. They were taking a trip to Orlando, Florida, where they planned to visit Universal Studios' Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Liz and Sergio planned to have a garage sale, 25th and the 26th of January, to earn a bit of extra cash before she and Sergio went on vacation. Although it's been mentioned online that these garage sales were an annual event for Liz and Sergio before taking vacations, Liz's parents have clarified for me that wasn't the case. An annual garage sales prior to vacations isn't accurate. Liz and Sergio put up two signs to advertise the sale on the night of the 24th, one at each entrance of their development, and they went about their evening. It wasn't something that they blasted on social media or told a lot of friends about. Liz arranged ahead of time to have off from work on Friday the 25th in order to start the garage sale by 7 a.m. That morning at around 6 a.m., Liz went to a local Starbucks for some coffee and was back home by 6.16 a.m. She and Sergio began to set up for the garage sale. At 6.48 a.m., Sergio pulled out of the driveway in a white panel van and headed to work. Liz had no idea that at that very moment, a killer who had been stalking her was about to strike. At 6.52 a.m., just four minutes after Sergio left, a neighbor's surveillance camera caught what looked to be the first potential customer approaching the garage sale. A black four-door Nissan truck drove past the home and made a three-point turn, finally stopping at the end of the Barraza's driveway. The driver got out of the truck and walked briskly toward Liz, who was still laying things out for display. Parts of the interaction between Liz and the driver were captured on a combination of both the Barraza's home security system and a neighbor's and both distorted-sounding audio and grainy video was recorded. It's hard to tell whether the person that arrived was a man or a woman, and their outfit looks strange. It looks like they may be wearing knee- or thigh-high white go-go-style boots and a white robe, coat, or dress. Later, some would theorize it might even be some kind of Star Wars costume. The person appears from the video to either have long hair, or they may be wearing a wig. But due to the quality of the video and the fact the sun wasn't fully up yet, it's hard to make out anything clearly from the video. Some of the audio appears to sound like Liz greets the person with the words, Good morning. When the person got close to Liz, they extended their right arm, pointing a gun towards her. Instinctually, Liz seems alarmed and jumps back. A couple seconds later, it seems as if the person who approached Liz extended their left arm out to her, perhaps handing Liz something while holding the gun in their right hand. Despite Liz initially being frightened, she seems to step forward again and reaches out with her right hand, perhaps taking whatever was being handed to her, if anything was handed to her a detail that hasn't been revealed by police. 
Then Liz is heard screaming as three gunshots echo through the quiet neighborhood. All three shots struck her. As Liz collapsed onto her back and fell to the ground, her shooter stands over her, firing at her, striking her for a fourth time. After the fourth shot, the shooter fled from the yard and jumped into their truck and sped away. The gunshots immediately got the attention of neighbors who were starting their days, and at least one of them quickly called 911. Curiously, the black Nissan truck is spotted on surveillance camera at 6.55 a.m., going back past the Barraza's house. The driver, for whatever reason, had turned around, and one of the witnesses who had heard the shots looked out and clearly saw the black truck as it went by, relaying the description of the truck to 911 dispatchers. Officers arrived on scene just seven minutes after Liz was shot, she was taken to a hospital by a life flight helicopter, suffering from four gunshots. Sadly, the injuries to her neck, chest, and face were too severe, and she wouldn't survive. Liz's husband and parents, along with countless friends, visited her in the hospital before she passed away. She was pronounced dead at 1.40 p.m. on Saturday, January 26th. By donating her organs as she had wanted to, Liz was able to save four lives and restore another person's sight in a final selfless act of kindness. As Liz's loved ones tried to comfort and support each other and come to grips with what had happened, police tried to find Liz's killer. Authorities have publicly said that Liz was shot with a revolver because there were no casings found at the scene, and as seen in the video, the killer didn't pick up anything off the ground before fleeing. Four different 380 caliber bullets were recovered in all, one that passed through Liz's neck and struck her house, and three that were found in her body. It seems clear that Liz was the intended target. It wasn't a robbery, and nothing was stolen. Police checked earlier footage to see if anything might be found that would help their investigation, and sure enough, they spotted something. At 2 a.m., almost five hours before Liz was shot, the same black Nissan truck was captured driving through the neighborhood, slowly by Liz and Sergio's home. Other surveillance footage gave police more to work with, building a timeline. At 6.47 a.m., just moments before Liz was shot, the black truck was captured on video pulling into a Goddard School parking lot. Unfortunately, the school's cameras weren't working at the time, so there's no footage from the short time Liz's killer spent there. At 6.48 a.m., the truck pulled out of the Goddard parking lot and onto a side street, seemingly to wait for Sergio to leave for work. As soon as Sergio left for work, the killer drove to Liz and Sergio's home, finding Liz alone. Moments later, she was lying on the ground, and the shooter had fled. Much has been made about the movements of the truck after the shooting, and just why it drove back past the scene not long after Liz had been shot, when surely neighbors would have been looking outside and could have seen the truck, which is exactly what happened. Some people theorize that the driver was lost, and others think that they wanted to drive by again in order to verify that Liz was still on the ground and hadn't somehow managed to get up and go for help. Why the driver did what they did remains as much of a mystery as why Liz was shot in the first place. One point of interest is that due to a bolo for a black Nissan truck being radioed out to police so quickly after the shooting, police actually spotted one and pulled it over not far from the crime scene, mere minutes after the shooting. But according to police, the driver was found to have a good reason to be in the area and was let go. The motive for Liz's murder remains elusive. She was well-liked, friendly, and outgoing. And as I mentioned, she liked to help support sick kids. Why would she end up the target of a cold-blooded killer? Besides one woman Sergio named immediately to investigators, who was another member of the 501st Legion, no one was known to have any issues with Liz at all. Closer look by police into Liz and Sergio's lives didn't reveal anything unusual. No financial issues, no affairs, no domestic abuse. While the spouse of a murder victim is always looked at closely, Sergio appears to have cooperated with investigators. That hasn't stopped people from pointing the finger at him 
or theorizing that he had something to do with Liz's murder. Sergio even refused to cash in the life insurance policy Liz had because he was worried that it would cause people to point the finger even more at him. In the years since Liz was murdered, her husband Sergio found love again and remarried to a woman named Amber, but he remains close to Liz's parents, Robert and Rosemary, and they are all desperate to finally have answers in the case and to see Liz's killer brought to justice. Not surprisingly, people have theorized that Sergio had Liz killed so that he could start a new relationship with Amber. But Sergio has stated that he didn't meet his new wife until after Liz's murder, and both Sergio and Amber have been questioned by police and have fully cooperated with their investigations, even taking and passing polygraphs. There's a $50,000 reward for information about Liz's murder. You can provide tips about this case by calling Crime Stoppers at 713-222-8477. Authorities believe they are looking for a 2013 or newer, black, four-door Nissan Frontier, Pro 4X, with fog lights and no roof rack. To follow any updates in the case, you can visit whokilledlizbarraza.com, which is maintained by Liz's family. It's the most accurate source of verified and correct information, which is very important in this case, because due to the attention the case has gotten in the media, on podcasts, and on online forums, unfortunately... Some inaccurate or simply bogus information has been shared. Part of the reason I wanted to cover Liz's case is to help set the story straight about her case and to clear up some of the misinformation that's out there. If you want a fully detailed, longer deep dive into Liz's case, head over and check out episode 265 of my other podcast, Criminology, in which we tackled Liz's case in depth. I sat down with Robert and Rosemary to discuss their daughter Liz's case and the aftermath. And Robert and Rosemary don't do a lot of interviews, so I'm extremely honored that they decided to join me on the murder of my family. Our discussion about Liz's case was so broad and covered so much ground that I had to split this episode into two parts. They go into great detail about the rocky road that they've had to travel over the past four and a half years, and some of the pitfalls that they've had to deal with, and the positives and negatives of having Liz's case featured so heavily in the national spotlight. They also talk about allies and resources that have helped them along the way, including the assistance of Andy Kahn, Director of Victim Services and Advocacy for Crime Stoppers of Houston. And Andy was also kind enough to join me for this important discussion, a discussion that's coming up in just a moment. Hi, listeners. I want to let you know that Wondery's shocking true crime podcast, Over My Dead Body, is back for a fourth season, Don Hunting. The newest season covers the story of Mike Williams. It was Mike's sixth wedding anniversary when he set off on a hunting trip into the gator-infested swamps of North Florida, He figured he'd be back in time to take his wife, Denise, out to celebrate, but he never came back. Friends and loved ones feared he met his fate through bad luck and a group of hungry alligators leaving his young family behind. Except that's not what happened at all. And after 17 years, a kidnapping and the uncovering of a secret love triangle, the truth would finally be revealed. Enjoy Over My Dead Body Gone Hunting on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcast. You can binge all episodes of Over My Dead Body early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com slash plus. With me today are Robert and Rosemary Nully, the parents of Liz Barraza and Andy Kahn, Director of Victim Services and Advocacy of Houston. I want to thank you all for being here for this very important conversation. You bet. Happy to be here. 
Bob and Rosemary, you and I have talked a few times before we ever hit the record button here uh, about not just Liz's case and what happened, but the aftermath, how it affected you, how you dealt with the fallout and some of the help and advocacy you got from people like Andy, who's with you here today. It was very important, it seemed, for both of you to talk about the path you've been on since Liz's death and with the hope that our conversation might help others going through something similar and we're going to dive into all of that. But before we do, can you tell listeners a little bit about Liz and what she was like and help listeners get to know her a little bit? Um, Liz was just a, a, a very kind, thoughtful person. Um, she was. She always had a smile on her face. She had a great sense of humor. Um, she she wanted to bring smiles to everybody. I mean, she just, she's just sweet. And, uh, she was always thinking of others. I mean, if, if she, if she found out you needed something, she would do whatever she could to fill that need. Um, she was a good listener, a good friend. Um, just she was so giving of herself of her time I, I know uh, that one thing we talked about before was some of the the volunteer hospital stuff she she did which seemed very selfless um, can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that stuff that she was involved in so after she got married, her husband had wanted to join a group called the 501st Legion, which is a costuming community dedicated to um, the Star Wars fandom. And um, he ultimately did become a member. And the, the way that you become a member is by building a movie-accurate costume. And the costume has to be reviewed and... Uh, approved before you can actually use it. So Liz joined as well after his costume was approved. Um, She got a costume as a biker scout approved. And the draw for Liz really was that the 501st does a lot of charitable outreach to hospitals, to um, places where people need the, the joy that being visited by a couple of stormtroopers, a Darth Vader and a R2-D2 can bring that kind of momentary total joy. And she got very, very, very excited about hospital troops. So the the group here in the Houston area um, visits a lot of different hospitals. A lot of times it's a children's oncology ward and they've shown up for uh, bell ringing ceremonies. They've shown up just for uh, the patients in the hospital. We'll have like an event around Halloween or Christmas. And then they've also done special ones where uh, a patient requests uh, a, co- a contingent of characters for just before or after a surgeon. And so they wake up and they've got Darth Vader and three stormtroopers in the room welcoming them back. So that's what that's what lit her up. That's what got her going. And she even um, 
she loved to go to this one event that's called um, Mardi Gras, and it's it's done for the uh, for the special persons in the Houston Galveston area, and it's a huge event. We're talking hundreds of kids and young adults with special needs. And she would go there. We have these amazing videos of her dancing in costume with all these kids. And that was really her draw. She used that investment in a Star Wars costume to find a way to give back to these communities. And you know, just to hear her talk about how she got to do this was just so amazing. And that was really what drove her in that event. She even became an event coordinator and, and you know, to help out, but she was drawn to the community outreach types of events. Well, it, it sounds like she was really giving with her time. She was friendly. She was sort of outgoing, involved in stuff, not really someone that seemed to have enemies. So I, I imagine that had to be pretty all the more shocking when this happened to, to her. Um, I, I want to go back to January 25th, 2019, uh, the day this all began when this was set in motion and, and not so much talk about the murder itself, the clues, the theories, all of that. Maybe that's a conversation for another day, but instead I want to find out as parents, what went through your minds when you got this terrible news and what were the immediate effects on you? Um, we, well, I was on both of us. Um, I was on her doorbell, uh, or excuse me, her alarm company's call list as the second uh, caller if Sergio or Liz hadn't answered. And um, my, I got a notification that her alarm had come up, gone off, and um, it woke me up. It was, uh, I think, around six, no, seven twenty something like that. I can't remember the exact time. Um, uh, my, it, I got a notification and um, woke me up. And so I would called her right away. And, um, you know, we knew that she was having the garage sale. So we, you know, it's like, going, okay, you know, she forgot she put the alarm on and, you know, whatever. Didn't really think anything. But I did call her right away and um, she didn't answer. And immediately, um, I felt like something was wrong. Because uh, I'm like, she would have answered for sure. And um, so a few minutes later, Bob and I both got up out of bed and we started getting ready because we were like, well, okay, something happened. And then the um, alarm company actually called us and um, you know, we explained that, you know, they, they wanted to know if they should call the police. And I, we're like, I, yeah, I guess, cause we've tried to call her and she didn't answer. And, you know, um, so we, we, we were out of the house very quickly. Um, and we were driving over to her house and we were just, we were, we had no idea what had happened, but we knew that it, it, this this was not normal and um when we were on our way Sergio had called us and um he had said you know 
he was having the same issues and and um i don't know if he actually i don't it's kind of confusing on whether they got a hold of him or he may have been in in um the lows but um he said that you know about the alarm going off and that you know we explained that we had told him to go ahead and call the police and and um a little bit later he called we were still on the way and um he said that he had he could see police tape he looked at his ring or excuse me his nest camera footage and he could see police tape um in front of the house and he said well between his house and the neighbor's house and so he's feeding us this information and letting us know what he knows and um when we pulled into her subdivision um we saw an ambulance and a fire truck and uh i was i got hopeful because it's like when oh this is not at her house her house is around you know a corner and so i'm thinking okay this maybe maybe everything's okay and i actually pulled up to the ambulance and i i i said I, I can't exactly remember what I said, but it was kind of like, you know, are you here? Do you remember what I said? Yeah. Um, you identified yourself as Liz's mom and said she lives at 8623 Cedar Walk. Um, and the ambulance driver said, I think you should proceed down towards the house. And that's when we found out that the, the fire trucks and the police and all the emergency people were there because that was the spot that was picked as the landing spot for the life flight, which had left just a, a couple of minutes before we left. In fact, we probably crossed paths <laughs> on the way there, and that's when we really knew something was bad. And we turned the corner, and as soon as we turned the corner and we had a visibility over street, we saw a large number of um, constable uh, response vehicles from the, the precinct for constable department. We saw a large presence and the, the street was, was crime scene taped off. We drove up as close as we could get and then stopped and got out and we spoke with an, uh, emergency medical responder and he told us, uh, we identified ourselves as Liz's parents and he said, uh, we asked him if he knew what had happened and he really was kind of didn't have a whole lot of details. We asked him about the patient that was transported and um, I, I remember asking him, is she going to be okay? And he said, well, she was alive, she was breathing when we, put her on the life flight. He said, and I'll be honest with you, I've seen people that were hurt worse turn out fine. And I've seen people that were hurt not as much uh, pass away. And that's when we just, we walked up and identified ourselves to the police presence there. And they took some information and they talked to us. They actually separated us mm -hmm. and talked to us individually. And uh, I know for a fact they tried to confirm our relationship to Liz. Um, and, and we were so 
I mean, this is a moment in your life that changes everything. Every step forward from this point is a path that you never anticipated, never thought about. And at this point, we really became concerned. Um, we knew that her husband was inbound. He had left for work and he was coming back and we knew that he was inbound. And when he arrived, um, he was immediately, um, taken with by the constable's deputies aside and they started questioning him. We, we stood around, we waited around for a period of time. And my wife will tell you, it feels like we were there for two hours. And it was really like 15 minutes. We wanted, we didn't want to leave Sergio by himself. Yeah. We, we knew that he would not be able to come, that they were going to question him, you know? And so we kept calling his, his dad and saying, somebody needs to get out here to be with him. And it, like Bob said, it seemed forever. Yeah. And finally, I, I just said, look, we need to go because we didn't really know Liz's condition. We knew that she had been shot. We knew that she had been life fighted. Um, and I got to say, when I heard that she was life fighted, I, I know that people survive when life flight is called, but I, I don't know. I really, I just, I just knew that, um, I, I just kind of lost um, any, I, I was calm. I mean, I think I was just in shock, really, is what it amounted to. But I, um, I, I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of hope at that time. I mean, it was just kind of like, um, if she's life fighting, that's, that's bad. That's, that's really, really bad. And um, so we finally, we, we, we just, we kept calling his dad and saying, you know, Somebody needs to be here with Sergio, you know, get, come yourself or, you know, have his wife come. And um, finally, we just had to say, you know what, we can't wait any longer. We need to go down to the hospital. And um, so we, we, I think we, we were only there probably about 10 or 15 minutes when we finally left when, since when he first got there. So, um, we're on our way down and we have and it's <laughs> nearly an hour away. Yeah. I mean, it's a long drive um, from Tomball down to Houston. Um, and uh, so we're, we're just driving and we're, we're, we made a couple calls. I, um, you know, to our families just to let them know when we got down there, it, you know, we really, I, I don't think we really told anything right away. Um, we had called our son and, um, he and his wife had beat us down there, uh, to, at the hospital. Um, and, uh, we just waited a while and they, finally they, they said that they were working on her, cleaning her up and stuff. And, um, they were going to transfer her to the shock trauma ICU unit. Um, and that was where we would be allowed to see her. We couldn't see her in the emergency room. And so we got directions to that unit and we went up there and um, that's when, that's when we, we discovered the true horror of the day. Um, 
we had spoken with uh, really no one in, in any kind of a position to give us an update until we got up there. Um, the Houston Police Department had um, had dispatched an officer to um, to be there, and we discovered later that um, a precinct four constable had actually taken the the helicopter ride down to the hospital with her and had stood guard outside of the ER and had stood guard outside of her room until relieved by HPD. And when questioned, he literally stated that he did not want her to be alone, which was just one of so many extraordinary good things that people did for us starting that day and has never, has never ceased. But ultimately, my son was there with his wife and Rosemary and I, and we talked to the first doctor. And that's when they told us that um, she was so severely wounded that they had little or no hope for any kind of a recovery. And that um, we could go in and see her. And that's when... They also said about an organ donor. Yeah. They asked if she was an organ donor. And uh, I, I indicated that it... It was my belief that she was, but um, they had to wait for her husband to come down because he was next of kin in terms of um, that line of succession. And when he did eventually show up and, you know, we shared the news that um, it was not, it was not going to be recovered. She was not coming out of this. Um, he made the decision to, to do the organ donation. And that decision was a wonderful thing for five people who got kidneys and liver, her heart and her corneas. Um, but to the same extent, um, it took them several days to get all the donations lined up and they couldn't start until she was officially declared which didn't happen until the following day at 1.40 in the afternoon. So we had a long couple of days bedside, and her friends from the 501st showed up in droves. On the 25th? On, on the 25th. Uh, we had you know, 20 people out in the waiting room, and um, we managed to work out an arrangement with the hospital so that we could bring people back to see her and pay their respects um, and it was just the family made a decision that she was never to be left alone that somebody must always be in the room and holding her hand so that she could feel our presence and we we kept that up all the way through the time that they took her down for the organ donation like mm -hmm. tuesday morning very very early there were a couple times when they had us to leave if they have to do something personal. But after a while, we they were would let me stay. Yeah. And um, and we asked them if you're gonna, you know, if, if we all have to leave, it's fine. But while you're doing whatever um, things that are required, somebody needs to please hold her hand. And it was really the the nursing staff and the doctors there. Um, the nursing staff in particular, just absolutely got it. And when they would come in to do something like, like change the bandages on her eyes to preserve her corneas or run an IV or administer a med, 
they would all pat her arm and they would talk to her and and let her know what they're going to do. And that was sort of the first step in this rest of our lives journey that we're dealing with. We, we, we found a lot of comfort in the way she was taken care of. From the sounds of it, it, it sounds like on one hand that had to be an unbearable ordeal to go through, but at the same time, it seems like you had maybe a, a glimpse of how much she was cared for by all the people that showed up to support you and, and be there for her. Oh, yes. yes. She she had, I mean, she really made a big difference in so many people's lives. And, um, you know, the fact that I mean, it was like crazy how many people came and stayed. I mean, you know, I mean, and they like, I don't think it was like they intentionally took shifts, but there were always people in the waiting room for her, you know, and um, it's, it's a testament of, of just, I, to me, it's, it just proves how loved she was by so many people. And, um, but when we had a week, a week after the crime, um, her friends organized a vigil at her home. Um, and this is one of the things I want to point out is in the early stages of of coming to grips with, with having someone taken from um, you lose the, you know, we're really rational, pretty organized people. We know what to do. We have, we have, you have no clue what's going on. And her friend stepped up and said, let's do a vigil. Let's, you know, call attention to this. And we were like, oh, that's a great idea. And they knew that we were just completely out of it. And they went ahead and organized this whole thing. And it happened a week, a week after, um, a week after the crime on, on the Friday. And, we alerted, you know, we, we talked with the media and, and let them know that this was happening and invited them. And, and our detective, Michael Ritchie, was kind of advising us that maybe this wasn't a good idea to invite the media because a lot of times you invite the media and you have a real sparse showing, you know, 10 people show up and um, we just simply told them, you know, we think there'll be quite a few folks here. And as it turned out, we never got a right good count, but right, there but was probably about a hundred, maybe yeah. 75 people. There were a lot of people there. And, and we, they were, they were, it was kind of all kinds of people who were this neighbor, people that, you know, her neighbors, um, Bible first members, Bible first, people uh, she knew in high school, people that, um, they, yeah. In college. I mean, it was just, it was really, I mean, there were people there that she was friends with in, in middle school Yeah, that she really, I mean, they were still friends, but it was like they didn't see each other. And, you know, but it, it was really, it was so wonderful to see. And one of the most surprising people, people that showed up was uh, one of the directors of the Children's Oncology Ward. Um, at one of the hospitals where she did a lot of this visitation of, of patients and they showed up and said, you know, your daughter was a huge 
presence in our to our patient community. She would she would show up or organize it so that people would show up anytime that we had a request. And she was just she was just devastated, like like everyone was. But she said, "I just I have to tell you." Um, how much we appreciated your daughter and what a wonderful human being she was. And so that vigil was like, it was, it was live streamed uh, by several news stations. And that vigil became kind of our first step after her murder towards this road we're on today. We weren't even really saying it, it's it's so weird. Thank God for of this friend that organized all this because you know we were at the hospital um, until Tuesday morning, early Tuesday morning um, is when they took her down for her donation, and um, it. it we we didn't think about plans or anything. We were just there, and it, you know, with her, and so um, it. I don't even. We were just so out of it. That's the whole thing. We were so in such shock that we we didn't. We didn't. It didn't. I don't even think it occurred to us at yeah. all. We had no clue about any of it. You know, and we were quickly informed by her friends that they were going to do this vigil on Friday. And then the following day, they were going to do a celebration of her life. They had already gotten a place that volunteered to host it. It was an indoor venue, and it was going to be a potluck, and it was going to be all about Liz. and And they were asking us who we wanted to invite. And it's like we were just just had no clue. And but there was no no media was there. Yeah, was that very was private. private. But there were still probably two hundred people there. And one of the things that was really cool for us is, um, you know, of course, Bob and her brother and of course Sergio um, spoke about Liz. And then they passed the mic around to the different tables and hearing people are just saying what Liz meant to them. And they, so we heard a lot of stories that we would have never known. Yeah. Um, of just about how what she did for them, you know, uh, and it it was like I, through all this, I have to say, one of the good things that has come out of this, I know my daughter better than I ever did, and we were close, but the 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 five oh first. It just reached so many people and just, I mean, and that, it wasn't just final person. I mean, she had people from work that were there and they would were telling stories and it's, she just was so thoughtful and it, it just, it was so touching. I got to see her as an adult. I was, you know, we see her and everything and, uh, you know, quite frequently, but I didn't, I didn't I knew she was good. I knew she was a kind person. I knew all that. I just didn't know that she had touched so many people. Um, and that, that, I try to find, and I do believe that when something bad happens in your life, 
something good is there. There, you can find something positive, and I, I did that. I mean, I, I think we both. It's it's we both really got to know her in a different way. Yeah, one of the things that that we've learned on this journey is that. So first off, the grief is never ending. We will have this grief in our lives until it's our turn to leave. Um, and what really matters, and I would say this to, to anyone that's starting down a path not that they did not choose, that you need to you need to find friends, you need to get support, you need to have people that you can talk to about this. Um, you need to get professional help because what we've learned, um, uh, we both belong to a group called the Parents of Murdered Children. And I would definitely urge you if, if this has happened to you, go on the web, look up Parents of Murdered Children and find a chapter near you because this is truly the only support group that is that is targeted at the surviving family members of homicide and um we are so lucky not only do we have a, a pomc chapter in our place but we also have this extraordinary organization called crime stoppers of houston and their support for our family and their advice and their counsel and their assistance has been the difference between um, really us surviving this. You know, we hear from so many sources about marriages that break up and people, families that get split apart and people that can't deal with the grief and take their own lives. And we're learning that uh, when something like this happens to you, you actually are experiencing uh, a condition called complex grief and it is very much a PTSD kind of condition and you're not going to survive this without help and support and the other thing that's so important is you have to come up with a with a strategy to move forward and there's a lot of different ways to go some of them good some of them bad and for us, that strategy is uh, the preservation of her legacy and the extension of her acts of kindness and goodwill. And that's what sustains us because when you get hit, when something triggers uh, a tough moment for you, like for me, it's typically music um, or uh, it, it can be anything. Somebody calls up and talks to us and you know, it's it's so difficult. Um, one of the things that you have to do is you have to have a happy memory to go to after that wave of grief passes over you. You know, and 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 you you, you have to try and equalize your emotions so that you know you've just experienced the most soul rending pain you can imagine. You know, I, I often think about, you know, God, all the things that we would have done together, the, the Christmases, the Thanksgivings, we don't get that anymore. But yet, I can turn around and remember a Christmas or a Thanksgiving 
where she did something silly or outrageous and it just <laughs> it brings a smile back to your face the only thing about grief that i think is important with when you're going through this is especially when you have a spouse um we all grieve differently and that is very difficult if you are on different pages. <laughs> and Bob and I, we unfortunately were. <laughs> we were in different books. <laughs> yeah. And um, that was really difficult. Um, we, we had to navigate that. And we're still navigating that because we still, I mean, are different. We're much more on same page as we were before but you know i grieved where i where i needed to talk about liz and about the the case and bob didn't want to talk about it um he's very you know private and um he would talk he did have a couple of people that he could talk to but he didn't want to talk about it with me and so that was really difficult and you have to that's so important that you at least acknowledge that. And we both, uh, even though we were in different places, we understood where the other person was, but it was just like, you can't put those things together. There's always gonna be like, you know, when it's it's complete opposite, you know, I mean, he'd be like, when, okay, it, finally we did reach a thing where it's like when he listens to me or, or, you know, and, and, and I listen to him with his will talk and he does talk to me more about it. Um, but then he'll say, okay, I, I, he's done. And I, and I have to respect that. So it's, it's, you, it is grief is just different from everybody. And it's that grief and how you deal with it, especially as parents that, that really has to, such a huge bearing on your relationships, your family and everything. Um, you know, I didn't want to talk to her because I viewed the discussion of this case and the loss of her daughter as deepening her pain. And I didn't want to be the one that like brought up mm -hmm. things that made her cry. And, 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 and ultimately she finally told me, that the fact that I wasn't talking to her was the most hurtful thing I could do. And so we, 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 we talked to each other. Yeah. We worked it out. But this is, this is just such an extraordinary thing. And to be honest with everyone that's listening to this, you need to find your own path. You need to find a way to survive this because you can't forget it. It's not going to go away. Um, and if you don't have resources like Andy Kahn, who you're going to meet soon from Crime Stoppers, or the Parents of Murdered Children. Or friends. And or family. friends and family. We are really very fortunate that we have wonderful families. And our friends have been wonderful. Um, and, and it's not, it's Liz's friends, a lot of Liz's friends, um have become our friends yeah um 
Is Even there... though there's a 30 year difference between them. <laughs> and I'm, it's, I'm it's only like 20. But... Yeah. but the other thing to, to let you know that, that you guys should be aware of, and Andy is the one that told us this, is that um, there are going to be people in your life you were really close to who you will become distant from because they just can't handle, can't process what happened. And they don't know how to talk to you, and they're going to be so on, on you know, pin the needles about having a conversation with you. And and we experienced this a couple of people that I literally would talk to at least once or twice a week. No longer take my phone calls or call me or or talk to me. Um, and it's it's not anything that we said or did. It's just the enormity of this thing is such that it. It changes, it it molds everything that you do go forward. And people are people, and some people can deal with it, some people can't, and then you'll have those that come to you with well-intentioned, but they really will say things or do things. We had someone who just, like, couldn't believe that we weren't over this, you know, move on and it's it's that perspective you can try and educate people that you know there's no moving on there's moving forward um but it, it just it's so tough it, it just for us anyway because we can't speak for everybody but for especially myself i can get really just totally consumed by it um it's very, um, I think people do want to help. They don't know how to help. They'll listen and they they really genuinely care about you. But it's just too, it's just too hard for them to see, I think, you in pain. Yeah. And so after a while, they're just like, I can't do it anymore. And that's a hard thing you know, to have to deal with that. That's another loss. But I have to respect that. Um, because it, it is painful. When you love somebody and you see them in pain, that's, they're going through their own grief, you know, because they, we didn't just lose a daughter. We lost ourselves. I mean, that the people that we were prior to this are no more. And I mean, we have a lot of good things in our life, but this is always in the background and it always will. I don't, I don't ever foresee a time when this is not going to just, it's, it's just going to be there. And we, there are days where we are like fine and you don't, you know, you're, 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 well, we have dry, we have we have dry days, days where we don't end up in tears. And and that, I think now it's that's mostly what we are. We're we're, we're good, but um, there are times where you know we'll be watching TV and something stupid will. I mean, it w- won't be anything that would make you think that you would start crying or whatever. I'm the one that's usually crying, and then Bob's like, I mean, we'll just look at each other. That's the thing. We don't even have to cry. We'll just look at each other and go, really? Yes. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I mean, 
So it's, 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 there's the triggers are all around you and you don't know when they're going to happen. You just have to like acknowledge them. And for the most part, that's where we do. We look at each other and go, yep. You just got to find a coping mechanism. So, but we have, we have uh, chimes were given to us, and those are our sign that she's pre- present. When we hear them, and she's very active. We, you know, we look at it as a sign from her, and you know, there's so many signs that we see, and so she's still with us. Yeah, we just miss seeing her. And I, you touched on a little bit. I know there's a sort of a ripple effect that when somebody's lost in such a, a tragic and violent way. It, it doesn't just take that person. It it sort of changes the outcome, the lives of everyone connected to that person. And it sounds that sort of has happened to you along the way. Right. And, you know, when we – so we met Andy Khan uh, of Crime Stoppers of Houston in early February of 2019 when um, that organization – organized a press conference to announce uh, a reward offering in her case. And uh, he, we got there early as requested and Andy pulled us aside and introduced himself. And um, he started giving us what has been an absolutely expansive advice on how to deal with things. And one of the things that he told us is that, you know, we have to find a way to, 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 to cope with this. And there's lots of different ways to do it. You can start a not-for-profit and help people. You can um, create a law and push that law through the legislature. And Crime Stoppers, of course, is part and party to these things. Uh, supporting it and helping it. Mm. And, you know, we chose the sort of legacy preservation because we can't let the pure evil that took our daughter end the good works and acts of kindness that she lived for. We can't live in a world that has no none of her presence. And so that's why we've done sort of little things that we've done to try and help. Um, and it's just, it's so important that you get this kind of advice from someone that knows what they're doing. And Andy, when he introduces himself and he talks about his experience, Andy is the definition of knowing what you're doing. And his experience in dealing with being a victim's advocate is um, we need to clone him and put him all over the place because seriously, without Andy and without the parents of murdered children, I don't know how we would have survived without the support of our friends and our families. I don't know how we would have survived. Yeah. Um, and he's our advisor. I mean, we don't make a move without talking to Ian. <laughs> and, and it's really important because one of the things that you'll find after a homicide is that you suddenly have a relationship with law enforcement. Hopefully. Yeah. If well, you're lucky. Yeah. 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 We, 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 and we've been lucky. We, we pray that you have that. And talking with Andy, you know, he helped us understand that we only had one job 
so um, that job was to draw attention to our daughter's case to help law enforcement so that the person that knows something, and these things don't happen in a vacuum, um, the person that knows something may or may not be aware that they know it or may be aware that they know it and they're keeping a secret, but we have to reach that person and bring them out because we can't solve the case. That's not our job. That's the job of law enforcement. But we need to be there and support law enforcement, and we need to be a beacon of support for our detectives and for the agencies involved. And he gave us advice on how to build a relationship. And our relationship with our lead detective is that we now have a, a, a regular once a week conversation to share thoughts and feelings and get an update on the case. And I want to state to everyone that this is really unusual. Um, and the only way that you get this is by following great advice. Just so you know, they're not just saying this because you're in the room with them now uh, on this call. They've they've sung your praises every time I've talked to them. Um, so they're they are really happy to have you around. And and you have quite uh, a resume and a lot of experience helping people uh, like Bob and Rosemary. Can you walk us through a little bit of, of your background and how long you've been doing this and and what kind of uh, work you've done? Yeah, sure, Mike. Glad to be here. And for the record, I approve Bob and Rosemary of them being here with you. So, <laughs> well, thank you for that. So, there you go with that one. So, I've been a victim advocate prior to my uh, journey into victim advocacy. I was actually a parole and probation agent for eight years. So, I chased Houston's finest all over. So, I actually come from within inside the criminal justice system, which gives me, of course, an added edge and working and knowing the players, the ins and outs, and knowing how the system works. And then in 1992, I became the first victim advocate in the country to be staffed out of a mayor's office. Basically, I was an ombudsman, a troubleshooter, a pain in a you-know-what, and a lot of other choice words that were given to me. So I had a very unique opportunity to build something from scratch. And I was actually at City Hall under multiple mayors for about 18 years, advancing the causes of victims' rights, public safety, and victim advocacy. Then I went over to the Houston Police Department, and then in 2018, Crime Stoppers made me what you would say in the old Godfather movie fashion, an offer I couldn't refuse, and they brought me over to start theirs. We are the largest Crime Stoppers in the country. We are the only Crime Stoppers in the country with its own building. We're the only crime stoppers in the country with a schmuck like me that does what I do. So 30 some odd years later, I'm still doing it. I'm a proud board member of the Houston chapter of Parents of Murdered Children and Surviving Family Members of Homicide, which Bob and Rosemary already touched on briefly as well. That is the only organization in the country in which someone else writes out your membership for you. No one asked to be part of this group, but we are proud and honored at Crime Stoppers to host their monthly meetings the second Tuesday of every month. So we have one of the most active and organized chapters in the country. 
And I also serve on the board of Texas EquiSearch, which is a search and rescue mission that conducts local and national searches that is also featured predominantly in the news. In my 30 plus years of working with victims, one of the things I recognized early on was how powerful the media was to their stories. And I, as a result, I developed relationships with both local and national media to ensure that victims, their stories would be forever told. And it's very important because the media to me is truly like the fourth estate of this country. And if properly used, can be an agent of change. So in my career, I've combined by getting stories out to the public, showing glitches in the criminal justice system and what needs to be fixed along with legislative advocacy. So anybody can yell and scream about injustices of the world. I would much prefer to find a solution and or a remedy and that's what we do. And pretty much what Rosemary had talked about earlier, you know, I can't go back and change what happened to Bob and Rosemary. I can't do, I wish I could, but I can't do that. But we try to make things better for others to come along and then Bob and Rosemary will leave a lasting legacy, turning a negative into a positive for social action change is what victim advocacy should be about. And I wish like hell, I never had to meet Bob and Rosemary, but at the same time, I'm truly grateful and honored because they've become an incredible uh, members of the organization. And because of their knowledge and their willingness to do what it needs to do to get their daughter's case out there and hopefully solve, they become a trendsetter for so many other victims' families to talk about how are they doing it. And that's very important so they can share their knowledge with other families that are going through the same situation. That answer your question? It does. And (laughs) I think think it just paints a clearer picture that we need more Andes, more organizations like yours, more Tim Millers of EquiSearch, more people like that in this space to help families in in need when they're dealing with this stuff. You do. And I'll tell you, Mike, crime victims are the only unwilling participants in the criminal justice system. Everyone else chose their role, including me yourself, law enforcement, judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and of course the offender. But no one ever said, pick me, pick me. I want to be a victim of a crime. So it's the least you can do, and particularly in government, is to help people out there looking for your rights and their well-being and making sure that the criminal justice system is working for who it should be working for, and that is victims of violent crime. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, when you go in to help a family that's in need, that's that's going through this. Uh, do you have a one-size-fits-all approach? Do you handle each situation differently in, in what that family member or family members are going through? You know, there's no policy manual. There's no. It's not like you can read a manual and you, you go to page 67 says do this. Every case, every family has to be looked on on its own merit. There's no one size it's all because everyone has unique situation and circumstances. So what I tell one family will probably differ from another family in the different approaches that we take. But I can tell you 
unequivocally in cases like unsolved homicides, like in Liz's case, that, that's what Crime Stoppers specializes, is that grief is intensified when justice is lacking. And sadly, right now, justice is lacking for Liz and Bob and Rosemary and their family. So it, there's two different throngs of approach. One, you have an unsolved case. What do we need to do? And then second, you have, thankfully, a majority of the cases that are solved. And then you have families that are thrust into this whole other world of criminal justice system. And it's kind of like learning a foreign language and you're put into this twilight zone and you don't know who you can trust, who's gonna give you the right information, who's gonna sell you a bill of goods or who's gonna just tell you what you wanna know and then move on. And that's where I come in. I will tell you, give you straight answers. Some of them you might not like but you deserve to know my 30 plus years of working in the system. And I'll give you an honest, honest response. Mm. Some of the guests I've had on have had a, a murdered loved one whose case has got zero attention. Uh, maybe a, a, a one sentence right up in a local paper and that never really mentioned again, but other cases like Liz's, for example, have gotten so much attention um, I imagine on one hand, that's maybe a blessing and a curse because in one way, the media attention, it, it being out there gives more chance of the case being solved. But at the same time, having that constant attention on the case, it, it seems like it would make you have to keep dealing with this grief over and over. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, is this something that you feel that way that you have when you have to talk about this? constantly that you have to sort of rehash that pain and, and grief to tell Liz's story? Are you asking me or you know, I'm assuming you're talking to Bob and Rosemary? For Bob and Rosemary. Yeah. And then I've got a follow-up question with you yeah, as well. Sure. Um, it's, it's not, it, it's a hard thing to do. Okay. To do the interviews but we want to do them because Andy says so. No, <laughs> but but because we do want, want this out in the media so that the public knows. This is, after we're at four months, four, four years and seven months, just past that. And since her, her uh, since she was shot. Um, and so it's, you're not, we're not going to, it's going to come from somebody that knows something. And so that's why the media is so important. And that's why, you know, we, every time we do an interview or anything, honestly, with her case, we call the detective, her detective, and we call Andy. And we do know Andy has told us, I don't think you should do that, you know, or yes, you know, or, I mean, we know we're going to get an honest opinion from him. He's going to, he is our director. I mean, so in, it, with media, yes, it, it, it hurts, but it's so important. And it's, it, it's some of the most difficult stuff we've ever done. And, um, you know, Andy gave us some advice about dealing with media. Um, the advice was, you know, take every contact you can find and record them, keep names and phone numbers, um, especially the ones that you find are are 
respectful and and treat the case in the way that you want it to be treated. Um, and then, of course, because of his extensive experience, uh, he's actually introduced us to people. So Andy was instrumental in our getting uh, taping with Andrea Canning of uh, Dateline NBC. And that was really soon after. That was probably two months after she passed. And he even found a place at Crime Stoppers for the interviews to occur. And we were, myself and her husband, were interviewed for probably six or seven hours at a time when this was so, such a fresh wound. And, you know, you go home after doing that and you're just, just unable to do anything. You have to literally go back and and restore yourself to that. And we've now done this um, with so many different platforms. So we have had a lot of local news coverage with some extraordinary people like Grace White and Randy Wallace, um, which are local news. Um, Randy Wallace helped us get onto America's Most Wanted. Uh, they did a, about a 90-second segment on us. Um, Andy has helped us with a lot of media and then we've just, we've taken the chance to reach out and we've been on Inside Edition. We've been on People Magazine, both in the, the Prince Magazine and the, um, their webcast. We've been, um, on, uh, on the case with Paul is on. We have hopefully a, a, an hour long special coming out this fall on Discover ID. Uh, that was filmed originally for CNN, uh, that, that, you know, and these things are tough. I mean, for that CNN headline news footage that was captured, uh, we spent about four weeks in background providing information, pictures, pre-interviews. We talked with multiple producers. We talked with um, the person that was going to actually be conducting the interviews. We, um, arrange other people. You know, we made sure that they talked with our detectives. We made sure that Andy was involved, although we didn't really have to make sure because they knew Andy already. But um, we helped them find neighbors. We helped them find friends. We helped them get some of these ancillary interviews for, for that piece. And like I said, it took about four weeks mm -hmm. to, to get that all clear. And the whole time you're doing it, you're constantly having to go back to January 25th of 2019. And it's unfortunate, but it's the price you have to pay. If you want to get the, the media that the case deserves, you've got to do that. And as painful as it is, you know, you're, you're talking to a guy who has a face that's absolutely made for radio. Um, so this is perfect. Okay. Yeah, we have, we have, <laughs> we, we never had any, Two of us. <laughs> three of us, never, 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 never thought that we would have as much media coverage on our case as we've had. And, you know, now about two years ago, we discovered that there's this whole internet community and we're literally talking about hundreds of podcasts and sleuth groups and, uh, uh, TikTok 
folks that want to talk about a case. The true crime thing is an aspect that we knew nothing about. And when we talked with Andy and we talked with other people, you know, one of the things that we realized is that all of our focus on national media and on local news is really, really great. But there's a whole segment of the population out there, the 35 and under, that don't really go to the national media, don't really watch the news. They use the Internet. And so we started this whole thing about trying to support those communities as much as we can. Uh, we don't – this is very rare that we give an interview, but Mike's – this podcast that we're on that, that Mike has created – is really it's the most amazing thing to be able to give back to other families that are going through this we felt like this was worth doing we asked andy and he said absolutely that was <laughs> what one word answer should, should we do this and we send the links and he said, absolutely well, well and, I, <laughs> that's i appreciate that andy and Yeah, Mike, let me, I'm going to tell you a very quick story on why I truly firmly believe in getting these cases out there. Okay. And this involved a serial killer by the name of Coral Eugene Watts. And he was he was murdered uh, 13 Houston area women, 1981, 82. He was suspected in over 40 nationally. And through quirky state laws, he was actually scheduled to be one of the first serial killers in this country be legally released in Texas in 2006. So in 2004, we took to the airways to let the public know locally and nationally that a serial killer was gonna be released. And we there was unsolved cases that were we were looking at, hoping to tie him into one of these cases. We did every possible media you can imagine. We did a segment for the Today Show. They reran it that evening on MSNBC. We had the Michigan Attorney General where Watts was suspected in numerous murders on. There was an unsolved 1979 case he was talking about and he asked for help. A guy came home from a suburb of Detroit and he picks up the remote and he starts flipping channels. And he stops on that channel and he sees the segment. He sees a sketch of the suspect. He screams to his wife. That's the guy I saw kill the girl in the alley 25 years ago. Calls the Michigan Attorney General's office the next day they go back and they look, this guy's listed as an eyewitness in a 1979 murder that was filed away because they thought he was doing a life sentence in Texas. So all because we got that story out there. And of course, because this guy was at home at that very moment, flipping channels, which I call divine intervention, that was the case they ultimately charged Watts with and then convicted him, thus eliminating him from ever being released. That's why we do this. Uh. Yeah, it's important. Sure. Um, and, and along those lines, I'm, I'm curious, though, when you have so many different TV opportunities, news outlets, podcasts coming out uh, to talk to you and you help sort of insulate Bob and Rosemary um, and, and help them figure out, OK, who, who do you talk to? Who do you uh, go with? Um, how do you make those decisions of, of what might be the appropriate uh, people to work with to, to tell Liz's story? Well, uh, I go back to my Clint Eastwood philosophy. The, the good, the bad, the ugly. So 
<laughs> so, you know, pretty much uh, as someone who's been doing this and has worked very closely with media for over 30 years, I kind of know the, the land of the laymark, what's going on out there and what's not in their best interest. So, and of course I will check things out and I'll check the other true crime people that are in my cabinet, my kitchen cabinet, as I call them, get their perspective as well. So I, I seek other opinions as well. And then we make a decision based on that. Yeah. And, and the, the true crime community is filled with a lot of wonderful people, but it, <laughs> admittedly there are some, uh, there's, there's fringe groups out there. That's reality. Fringe That's, groups. You know, there's groups that, yeah, that will use things yeah. for their own, uh, you know, ulterior motives that you're not aware of. So, yeah, bad apples. And a lot of it's trial and error. Yes, there are. Yeah. Sure, sure. And along those lines, uh, Bob and Rosemary, I know you've had some regrets about some of the people in the past that have approached you in regards to Liz's case. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what have you learned from some of those maybe negative experiences um, that would help you moving forward and might help others listening like yourselves that might be anxious to get any help they can, uh, but that might be leaving themselves vulnerable to, to less than scrupulous people. Well, I know for us, we, you know, we will personally check out people ourselves um, that want to do interviews. Um we don't do an extensive look at people. We count on on that from for Andy to do that. Um, and and also a lot of times, all we have to do is say, "Oh, you know, this person wants to do something, and should we do it?" And he already knows the answer. <laughs> so um, you know, or sometimes he just he does have to, you know, look into them. Um, it's. We're so careful about who we talk to, and uh, we've had some wonderful experiences with people that have reached out to us, and we've had some truly disastrous experiences, and that fuels a high, high, high threshold of caution. And we had we had a, a single individual that started out being very supportive and wanting to help, and then as he got further down the road, he sort of went off on a tangent and decided that I guess he was going to use Liz's case to, to build his viewership. And he was going to just do and say he, whatever he, he wanted to say. He basically, in our opinion, exploited. Yeah. Um, and, okay. and so we cut off all contact with him. The, the minute that we've said we had never, actually spoken with him was, uh, through text. And the minute that we started to see him acting like that, um, we let him know that, you know, we're done. We're not talking to you anymore. And then ultimately he has kind of self imploded. Um, he's said and done some things that are unacceptable, including airing a picture of a person that was mentioned by, um, Sergio on the day of the crime. When asked by law enforcement, is there anyone that Liz had a disagreement with? He mentioned this person, and it was really nothing of substance. And this person posted inflammatory pictures, identified the person by name. And as a result, um, she just got trolled 
and 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 harmed so severely by these unfounded allegations and that's why we decided um to to be much more cautious about it now a lot of a lot of the alternative media the media that's internet focused like youtube TikTok, uh podcasts and the like a lot of those things go on without any involvement from us mm-hmm. and and we we hear from her friends uh that something new is out we um i have a little uh google news bot that i run that that lets me know uh, when new content's been posted on Elizabeth. Um, but a lot of those things happen without our involvement. And some of them are extraordinary. Um, like yours. <laughs> like yours. Um, there's a TikTok person who runs a channel called uh, Criminology. Criminology and Coffee. Her name is Rebecca. And she just reached out to us and said, do you mind if I run an episode on Liz? And we said yes. And it would be okay that that you know, but she needed to be respectful, and um, that TikTok. She's actually done several. That TikTok went to three hundred and fifty, four hundred thousand views in like two days. And there's another guy, um, Mike O, who does a, a, a YouTube called That Chapter, and. Uh, Liz's case, the, the, the episode you did is extremely well done. He and Mike Morford uh, are the only ones that, in our opinion, produced an independent broadcast that is spot on accurate. And that's really rare. And the net effect of that was the, the, the that chapter thing has had 1.3 million that came out a long time ago. Yeah, that's a long time ago. But but this is where we really came to realize the power of that social media aspect. Mm-hmm. And while we can't and don't want to regularly go on social media, and we avoid it because of, of some of the negative things that can happen, uh, we want to encourage these thousands of people that are interested in the case to speculate and to investigate and do whatever it is that they're going to do, but we want them to do it with facts. We do not like when things that are not true, things that came up on Reddit or came up in web sleuths or whatever, gets magnified because, oh, well, I read this that, that, you know, she was only shot three times, not four times. And we want to make sure that the facts are out there so that if there is conversations and who knows, one of these conversations could trigger someone to call crime stoppers. And ultimately that's what we feel is the way that this case gets solved is a call into the crime stoppers tip line um, that does it. And with, with the help of Andy and other people, we've actually raised the reward in, in her case from $5,000 to $50,000. And the, the, the whole thing about it was we want to make sure that the tip comes in to Crime Stoppers because we know that they'll handle it correctly. 
and it will get to law enforcement. And by God, if somebody drops a tip that solves this case, I want them to get that money. Because that's just total validation of the technique and the methods and the process that Crime Stoppers provides it at no cost to the families of the victims. And so what we ended up doing was we talked with Andy, we talked with um, our detectives, and we said, we want to put it, we want to make up a website. It, we call it a one-way website. There's no communication mechanism established for it. You can't write us or email us or, or make a comment. But we wanted to put a website up about the case. And one of the things that we put up, there's two things that we did that I think super important. So the first thing is we have a thing called About Liz. And it is a very long listing of facts. Nothing on this website is speculative. It's all facts. And it has things. So like when this thing came up based on a constable's uh, incident report that said that the nurse in the ER had stated she'd been shot three times, um, we've added an entry to it that said that, in fact, she was shot three times. That the, one of the shots was through and through grazing off her neck that ultimately hit a corner of her house and ended up embedded in the, the soffit above her front door. Uh, and then the other shots were right on target. Um, I don't want people to think that there's only, she was only shot three times. She was shot four times. And we can say that because we were with we, her. We, we, we saw her wounds. We actually even saw two bullets. In yeah, the we saw the radiograph frame. of her chest with, with, with two um, bullets in it. So the thing about, it came out that it was, not only was it because of the, the constable's report, but also um, a YouTuber showed video uh the video of her doorbell camera and it shows he actually could see the puff of i don't know dust or whatever yeah, where the bullet hit the, the brick where it hit the brick and then could see it hit the um eaves or soffit and so people people on reddit and other sleuth groups they are thinking that oh this was not a hit because if it had been a hit they wouldn't have missed at point blank range. At point blank range, and so there's even though we, the detective who has seen the autopsy, uh, and state you know stated that she was shot four times, um, we 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 we've said it. You know we we, you know on the website Bob did make the update and said that she was four shot four times. The fact is. I know why, I understand why people are speculating that, oh, it was only three times because the video does show that, but it went through her and she was hit. And, and I'm sorry, the police do think it was a hit. We think it was a hit. And it's because nothing, we, it, we've ruled out. But it wasn't a robbery. They didn't take it. Right. And it wasn't sort of a random thing. Because, it wasn't road rage. Right. And th they drove by 2.30 in the morning uh, for home. And we believe that that drive-by at 2.30 in the morning uh, was to see what vehicle her husband would be driving 
that day for work so that they could know by watching the subdivision that she was alone. And this whole thing comes down to my daughter was very careful and very safe. And you would never catch her outside in her front yard before sunrise at any point. She, that's just not something she would have ever done. And they waited for him to leave and they see him exit the subdivision and they proceed to her home and they're there within like two minutes. And, and this whole thing goes down and it was so carefully planned. This is the only time you would ever catch her by herself in the dark. Because when she, she always parked in the garage. And so she would actually start her car in the garage with the door closed, get herself all situated, you know, and the doors locked. It, well, yeah, the car but, doors locked. But and yes, her car doors would be locked, and then she'd open up her garage door, and she would be looking in her rearview mirror. Liz was very cautious, and I raised her that way. I raised both of my kids. They need to be aware of what's their surroundings, because while we really never expected anything to happen, things happen, and so from a very early age. It was their safety was, I mean, on the top of my list and, yep. and how to be safe, you know, check your back seats before you, if you're in a you know parking lot and you, before you get in, you know, look under your car as you're walking up, you know, I mean, just all these different, um, be situationally aware. Yeah. It's just, you have to be aware when you're driving, make sure you're not being followed. I, that was a big one. Um, and I know that Liz took that very seriously because I'd be in the car with her and I'd be driving and she'd be like, you know, she would have noticed that somebody's, you know, maybe they weren't following us and they weren't. We, I, I never felt like they were following us. But um, it's just like that car has been behind us for a little bit, you know. And so w I would drive towards a police department. You know, that kind of thing. So she was always very aware of it. And uh, I know a lot of people are, especially the police, when her, when they opened up to clear her house, they are the ones that set up the alarm. And that was like 30 minutes after the shooting. Yeah, well, she, you know, she was shot about 648. And in that it was like 722. And, and uh, when they, they opened her, or the door from her garage into her home and it set off the alarm. And they were like, they were totally shocked by that. And they were like, well, that's one of the things they asked us about. Is Why would her alarm with this? That's, you know, cause it just didn't make sense to them. And it's like, no, this is makes perfect sense when you're talking about Elizabeth, because she knew that she was going to be out there by herself. And so all she had to do is, is get to the door if, some, if something didn't look right. I mean, obviously, if it didn't look right, she would have, you know. And she wouldn't even have had to have made it to the door because it was a missed trigger. She could have thrown something at the door. She could have. Whatever. Yeah, whatever but, it was. You know, but, I mean, she she set it up so that if she needed to get into the house. She could. And but and if she, it, even if somebody was right there, if she had to. At least the alarm would be going off. It. Yeah. So, um. So that, that's the kind of stuff that, like, in the website. So we did this whole thing about Liz. 
And then we, we, we tried to pull together a timeline because that was the other thing we kept so much confusion about is, um, you know, the, the actual timeline of events. And so we pieced together what we knew. And then we went to our detective, Sergeant Michael Ritchie, who uh, reviewed everything that we did and then provided uh, timeline incidents that he could validate from police reports. <coughs> Excuse me. And we we drove that timeline forward um, through, you know, a couple of days post-event. And to this date, that timeline is, is, it's a public resource that we've seen a lot of these social media people uh, have used. And that's the purpose of that website. And, and I know, Mike, you used it in the, in the episode that you did on your criminology podcast uh, in July. And I know that you used it because your facts are absolutely on the money. Well, and I think you even referred to it as well. Right. So we, this is just one of the things that we had an idea about that I would encourage other victims to think about if you're having some success with media coverage or you're getting some coverage on social media, but they're getting the facts wrong, build a simple little website. I think we pay about a hundred dollars a year for this website and it's, it doesn't require any uh, expertise to build. It requires you to make the commitment to make sure that the truth is available because I want someone to help us solve this crime. And if something that somebody says out there triggers someone's thing, then the, the, the point that Andy has made to us is that someone out there knows something. Your job is to make sure that they come forward. And we'll, we'll definitely link to the website in the show notes. It's who killed very good resource, uh, very detailed information. And as you said, it's, it's a, a very good checklist of things to use if you're really trying to learn about this case. Cause it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make sense. It does the case a disservice to spread inaccurate details and things that just are not true it doesn't help the case. And I think at the end of the day, if that's what you're looking to do is help the case, you don't want to put bad information out there. So I highly recommend the website and uh, anyone listening that's interested in learning the facts of this case, go there and, uh, and visit it. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's, it's been reviewed uh, by the, the detectives even, and they've helped you, sort of compile the facts. So I think that's a very, very important resource. Be sure to tune in for the next episode of The Murder of My Family when we wrap up the Elizabeth Barraza case. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.